the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We have been taking our time, as we mentioned last week, wanting to just think through what it is to live in the new covenant, our relationship, uh, and not that we've covered all that in this study, but our relationship with the old covenant law. Uh, in particular, what is it to be a new covenant Christian? What law do we follow? And I think we see very clearly uh, that answered in uh, this uh, particular section in 1 Corinthians 10, where we uh, see how we, what is to guide, what's the guiding principle that we might live in a way that fulfills the law of God, which of course is love. And, and so this section is all about how we interact with our brothers and sisters in Christ and in certain ways. Uh, last week, we saw that you don't have to investigate the motives behind everything that we buy or use. God created all things to be used for his glory, and so if our motives are correct, we are thankful with a clear conscience, and of course it is biblical, then we don't have to ask questions. We can buy it, we can use it. But, if something has a public reputation that is dishonoring to the Lord, then this might require us to think carefully whether uh, it's damage, is that damage to the Lord's cause. Um, and if so, then uh, what we say, what we do, what we wear must be carefully thought through. And uh, yeah, they say, well, is it easier to follow the commandments? Well, yes, I guess. Uh, although just that's not necessarily easy to do, but. Uh, the Ten Commandments don't cover everything. The Ten Commandments don't, have, don't tell you what to do when you walk to the broken door. Find something like you're dealing with here. The Paul say, meet off of the idols, right? So, no. We've got to have a better principle uh, that explains everything. Every last thing that we can say, do, or think. What guides us? And we see that it's more than just a feeling. It's not just the Holy Spirit. Uh, it is that he plays a part in all that, but it's based on the truth of God's word. Will I glorify God in this, and will it offend uh, uh, my brother? Will it cause disharmony in some of these things that we have been dealing with? We must be careful of letting someone else's beliefs dictate how we live if it is doctrinally incorrect, that is, someone else's belief. We seek to be all things to all people, but only for the gospel's sake and the Lord's reputation, not just to be liked, but for there to be some sort of peace at all costs. In other words, while we live to evangelize, we live for there to be peace, we want to be unified, we do not let any of that be the overriding factor in what we do. It is, first of all, to the glory of God. It's something that pleases Him. It is is it biblical? Does it serve the purposes of the kingdom? And then, uh, one of the past scriptures that we dealt with, I thought we just did such a good job of explaining some of this. If Christ be, uh, if, if with Christ you died to the elemental principles of the world, why, as if you were alive, still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? That is, do not handle, do not face, do not touch, referring to those things that all perish as they are used, According to human precepts and traditions and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I'll give you an example of that. 
that I came across recently in my message. So, we have been thinking through New Covenant living. We have seen that while we are not under the Old Testament law as a body and covenant, and that the Christian life can, we, we've seen that the Christian life cannot be summed up in following sin of anything. Nothing wrong with understanding the Ten Commandments and obeying them in, in the New Covenant life. But you cannot reduce holiness and godliness and Christ-likeness to Ten Commandments. You just can't do it. That's why it's not that we don't uh, benefit from the Ten Commandments, but there's so much more that we must also understand. It is best expressed in living to love God and others. As, as Paul says several times, love fulfills the law. Jesus says as well. Yet this freedom... Freedom from the law as such has restrictions, or maybe better said, purposes that guide how we use this freedom. Instructions to use our freedom to accomplish the most for Christ. And so we have spoken of the questions we must ask, as in Paul asked some of these questions, questions we must ask when we approach any subject or any activity. What am I going to accomplish by doing this, by saying this, and so forth. And of course, verses 24 and 20 and 31 are kind of like the uh, things that this whole text revolve around. 24, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. 31, do whether, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the two tables of the law in, in a very real sense, right? Now, one of the problems this brings is deciding when to offend and when not to offend. Of course, Paul has been talking about how we are not to offend our brothers and sisters in Christ. But clearly there are times when uh, we're going to obey in, in obeying the Lord, we're going to offend. Not to mention the law. Uh, and so if someone makes something an issue so that participating in it will look like you are condoning it, then there are times when we must offend. He says it's okay to eat meat offered to idols, but if it's in a public setting and you've got to participate in paganism or paganistic uh, banquets or whatever, well, then there's times when you, then it's, it would be wrong to do it. We also saw that for the sake of weaker brethren, weaker in their understanding of legalism, we tend to see things or objects as sinful rather than how they are used. I'll give you just a now the obvious, one of the obvious examples, you know, people would say that a, you know, a bottle of whiskey is sin. I, I don't say that. Or maybe we could say that uh, that can become sin, but it's not, it's just a bottle of whiskey. It's neither here nor there. It's how it is used, right? At least that's an example of what we're talking about. That in cases like that, we sometimes refrain from doing certain things in order to offend them when there's really nothing to be gained. You know, right, we've gone on vacation. Sanders family uh, tend, uh, are, are you know, dyed-in-the-wool fundamentalists. You know, they're, they're, they're great people. They're just, they just you know, understand things differently than we do. We've gone on vacation with them a couple of times. They will go to their grave believing that alcohol is sin, right? Whatever, I don't care. But when we're with them, we don't. If we're not going to drink in front of them. We're just not going to do it. It, it would serve no purpose. I don't. I don't want. 
I don't care if they dream or not. I don't want to attend it. It's not an issue that I'm going to make an issue out of, right? And then that would be, a, I think, an example anyway of that. But on the other hand, while we don't want to offend needlessly, even Jesus did not live solely not to offend people. Paul tells us in verse 11, 1, to follow his example, to follow Jesus' example, Jesus offended daily the self-righteous Pharisee who had reduced um, religion to a tiny list of do's and don'ts. Oh no, not tiny, a tidy list of do's and don'ts. Jesus ate with harlots in order to save them. So Jesus, and, and the Pharisees didn't like that either. So he wasn't just living not to offend people. Now let's be careful here because uh, we are not Jesus and so our ability to interact with sinners and anything is different than his. For us to eat with a known prostitute, for instance, would almost always be the wrong thing to do or would at least have to be very carefully thought out and planned, right? We're not Jesus. So think again, it's, it's, there are just not always black and white answers to all this. But the principle is not to ignore the lost, but to seek to evangelize them. I don't, we cannot look at the prostitute or the obvious sinner out there as the enemy. Um, they're the ones who need Christ. Right? So we gotta be, so that there's that principle there. We are to live for the glory of God. We are to look for opportunities to reach the lost. And we, when we do offend, it should be for those reasons. But when we offend because we want to use our freedom to do what we want to do, regardless of the outcome, then we've overstepped our place. Now, last week, um, I dealt quickly, uh, too quickly probably, with verses 28 and 29. It was at the end of the message, and I want to get to that baptism. And I forgot that I had actually put it in my notes this week, too. I figured it needs clarification, but 29, 28 uh, through 29, just I want to just remind ourselves why, what what's going on here, because it can sound a little awkward. He says, but if someone says to you, this meat has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience. And I said the first part of 29 should really be part of 28. I do not mean your conscience, but for his. So in other words, as we've been saying, if, if it's going to offend them, then uh, for his conscience sake, just don't, don't do it. There's no point in it. But then, new thought, middle of the 29, or why should my liberty be determined by somebody else's conscience? So he's not saying that, well, um, do what you want to do. Don't let somebody else's conscience bother you. Change what you're doing. He's not contradicting what he's saying here. And notice here how he changes from the second person to the first person. He, uh, he says in verse 28, you know, he's talking about for the sake of the one who informed you, for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. He's talking about the second person, your conscience. New thought. Now it's about first person. So it's, it's, it's a, now he's saying, this is, a, a, he's kind of summing up what he's been saying. For why should my liberty be determined by somebody else's conscience? For if I partake with faithfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which 
I give thanks. So we kind of look at verse 27 through 29 as a parenthetical example of the exception to the rule of verse 26. It's not that difficult. I'm just making it that way. Verse 26 says, For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So there's the principle. Everything is good. If it's used for the right purposes, it's good. Don't let anybody you know, trample on your conscience. But, then he gives these two questions that we dealt with last week. There are times when there's we have to refrain from exercising those liberties, right? And so in verse 29b, he sums up his point that if I can eat or do something with thankfulness, then I shouldn't be condemned by somebody else and don't let them condemn you. So he's He's kind of he's kind of gotten back to the original thing, and, and he's summing up the idea that if you can do it, they put them do it. But when you're with somebody in, in a situation where it's going to be a problem, then don't do it, right? So it's not that complicated. He's got to think through what he's saying there. And so that brings us to the verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all the glory of God. So shows us that he's summing up his arguments, and we find here three questions that should always be asked. So again, I'll cover this one more week to just kind of reinforce our uh, some of these things to us. Three questions that should always be asked in these circumstances as uh, of whether we can do the all things, whether the grave things, the things, the things that some people maybe have struggle with. I had one guy from my used to call it hang up. Anybody they they didn't they thought that was a sin. He said, Well they've got a hang up. Well sometimes maybe and sometimes not. You know, we gotta be careful of getting callous and not always re examining our convictions, right? And not just making fun of people. Right? So we gotta be very careful here. What are the three questions that we can ask ourselves to whether something is right for us to do it or not? And the first one of course is does it bring glory to God? That should be our focus. This means that we can't be preoccupied, and this is always part of our problem, we can't be preoccupied with our rights, our desires, our aims, whatever we want, whatever focuses on us, our glory, our pleasure, our desires. We, we just got to get that out of our mind. It doesn't matter what kind of rights we have, and I'm not sure if we have too many rights left uh, in America much longer, but it doesn't matter. The Constitution is not what we go by as Christians necessarily. This means that we can't compartmentalize our lives. We can't focus on our family when we're here, on work when we're there, and on God over here. Uh, you, you can't do that. It's all for the glory of God, not just when we're at church. Not just when we're, I'm with my family, we're having devotions. I, I got to be nice to my wife and speak highly to my children because I have a devotion. So all the time. We relate everything to God at all times, even while we focus on whatever area of our life we're talking about. So how I speak to my wife is as much a part of my spiritual duty and testimony as how well I do my job, if I'm working somewhere, my prayers, the ministry of the church, it's all the same. How I speak to my wife, how I treat my wife, is as much my spiritual duty as what I'm doing right now. 
And the same applies to you guys. And, and that's easy to forget sometimes. Lose, I, I struggle with it. It's always been a problem for us when we think that once we get home, we don't have to worry about how we speak or what we do. But there's no rationale to life. Listen to this. There's no rationale to life without understanding the truth that sets us free, which is to know and serve and glorify and enjoy God in everything. If we forget that and we start to compartmentalize our life, life will lose its, its uh, coherence for a Christian anyway. If we don't try to serve the Lord in church and at work and in the bedroom, we've lost all meaning to life. We certainly lost uh, our way as Christians. It's just that simple. Uh, just that profound. Uh, it seems easy. It's simple. Someone said that we suffer often from Jack Horner syndrome. You know, Jack Horner, I can't remember how everything goes. We sat in the corner and eating a plum pie, right? Uh, and and the, their idea was that we get all wrapped up in what's going on in our little corner. But it's not enough to just tack on to the glory of God or quote verse 31. The way we live, the way we, uh, the look on our face, our speech should all be a reflection of our relationship and understanding of God. Being mean at home, divisive in church, legalistic, arrogant, loose in your living, and none of it can be excused by saying, well, I do all for the glory of God. This is not according to his word. You can't glorify God if you're disobeying his word, right? So when people see us in any situation, it should be apparent who is our joy and the reason for living. And again, I, you know, I, I don't really enjoy preaching this message because it's just uh, one failure after another. But people should see by the way you live and the way you speak and the way you carry yourself the way you smile, your your demeanor, that you love the Lord, that you're content in the Lord, that that you're you know that even if they don't know you're a Christian, they should at least see that you're content, that you're full of joy, that 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 you're not rattled by whatever's going on around you. If we want to say that it's too hard to live for Jesus all the time, then okay, let's quit pretending that we're new creations. Let's quit telling people that we're Christians. Because none of this must work. The Holy Spirit really isn't able to change us from what we were. Yes, it's hard, but we're you know we're sinners saved by grace. That's what Christians do. We we are being transformed, and, and I believe that the power of the Holy Spirit is, is strong enough to transform the worst of us. Not perfectly in this life. But there should be some change. So being kind and loving to our spouses and brothers in Christ and doing our duties each day, getting up in the morning in the joy of the Lord, being faithful to church, should be the easiest part for a Christian. Especially when you consider uh, that if we were really suffering for Christ, if we were being persecuted, we, 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 Christ would expect us to do all that, right? Nothing's going to change. That's one reason why I have to assume that some of the weakest Christians on earth are Americans because 
we are so so often unable to love and to be strong in the easiest of circumstances. Yeah, speaking about myself as well. What on earth would we be like if if we have to face persecution, which by all accounts is beginning, and by the recent activity in Washington, uh, it could really turn on the heat. We'll see how it all plays out. But if we can't be godly and full of joy when everything's really going pretty well overall, what are we going to do when all of a sudden it's going to cost us your job and, and your reputation or whatever else? Be a Christian. This is why living, giving a cup, a cup, a, a cup of cold water in Matthew 25 was one of the ways that God used it to judgment. Because it showed someone that was caught up in Christ and not themselves. Here's someone who was thirsty. Well, then here, I've got a way to take care of that need. There you go. That, that's what Christians are. God doesn't need us to worship and serve him, but not to do so would be the stupidest and most nonsensical thing you could imagine by his creatures, right? We know that one cannot do that if if it hasn't already begun within. None of this can be done if we haven't had a transformed heart. You just can't get up in the morning in the joy of the Lord if you aren't happy to be in Christ to begin with. You can't have a smile on your face if there's not a smile in your heart. You just, you just, it, it, would, it would not be keeping the, the, the law of God anyway. God is not, remember how he got onto Israel for lip service. He doesn't want to hear how much you love him. He wants to see how much you love him. Secondly, are we being offensive? In the sense of causing others to stumble. Part of service is to look around and see how we're we're interacting with others. Are we benefiting people? Uh, Do do people, when they're around us, seem to be divisive or unhappy or mean or uh, discontent? Do we help people? Are we building people up in the faith? Are we setting a good example? Or are we the ones that uh, are causing the problem? And that means we've got to be interact with people. And if you're not interacting with people, then you've already got a problem. That's one of the reasons for the local church. Have I defrauded somebody else or not? If we offend because we're not living well, then that's on us. So, when you say, am I being offensive? If I'm being offensive for the right reasons, that's all well and good. But, of course, very often it's not. There will always be some who are offended. Yeah, that's just who they are. You, you, you can't please and that's you know, I've, I've learned to live with it. Right? God will deal with it. But for our part, I want to do, try to do whatever I can to their God. I want to try to do the right thing, right? If I offend someone by inviting them to church, or I'm not, they want me to go off and do something on Sunday, and it's the same amount of practice. And so, well, let's go do it on Sunday. And say, you know what? I, I That's not important enough for me to miss church. I'm not doing it. And they don't like it. Well, I don't care. I'm not here to please them. Please, please the Lord first. Some people always get upset if I don't do what they want them to do, and I can't help that, right? But let's be careful thinking that offense is always doing something that somebody else thinks is wrong. Offense can be godly, or it can be sinful. 
We can also offend by being legalistic. Well, we're always judging other people. You're doing the way I want you to do it, the way I think you should do it. You can offend a lot of ways. I don't want to offend by doing things that offend, but I don't want to offend by calling the all things sinful when I have no biblical basis for that. It will come across as holy than thou. So that's why I try to be very careful about classifying the gray area, certain you know, things that people struggle with as sin, uh, especially when there are those who don't, because you've got to think it through. You, you, you got to at least make sure that even though you, you believe it's sin, that uh, I don't come across as being judgmental or harsh in an unloving way, but in a way that would be beneficial. It, 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 it takes mortification of the flesh. That's what the Pharisees did. They just called everything sinful and looked down on people who didn't do what they told them to do. So being aloof because you can't be around people not as holy as you are and having a condemning spirit is offensive, but it's not in a good way. That brings us to 32. Give no offense to Jew or Greek or to the church of God. And so there again, talks about being offensive. Well, that reminds us of chapter 20, or chapter 9, verse 20, where Paul uh, tried not to offend the Jews and the Greeks. He was, when he was around the Jews, he, he lived as they lived by and large, uh, so as not to offend, and the same with the Gentiles. And so he, you kind of see here, he's wrapping up his argument. Give no offense to Jew or Greeks to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but what's the why? Why is he doing it? Is he a people pleaser? Is that Paul's probably just trying to please everybody? I got a book back there in the office that Greeks have to do if you, if you follow that category. I don't, but I'm not saying that in a good way. There are some people who they they drive themselves nuts because they just want to please everybody. They can't say no. There's a book back there that deals with it. kind of it's a helpful book. That's the problem. That's not what Paul's saying here. He says there's the reason he doesn't want to offend anybody, he tries to please everybody, uh, and not seek his own advantage all the time, is that of many that they may be saved. I'm trying to reach them for Christ. I'm trying to build them up in the faith. I'm trying to have peace in the church, unity in the church, whatever. So it's not that I'm a people pleaser. That I. Because the people pleasers are idolatry, right? You're supposed to please Christ. And if you live to please people, well, it's idolatry. But if, we, if, if Paul's case, I, I want to please you, I want to uh, have as much a good relationship with you as I can in order that I can be a benefit to you. And if you're lost, of course, so that I can reach you for Christ, then by all means be a people pleaser. As long as it's not anything wrong, right? So we finish up there in verse 33. It's hard work, but it's clearly also difficult to try to please everyone and everything when it comes to these all things, if you have the right motive. Paul had no problem rebuking saints and offending those who didn't want to hear the gospel. That's why we know Paul's not just saying, I just try to please everybody any way I can, because we've already seen him talk about church discipline, calling people uh spiritual babes in Christ, uh, you know, getting on to them for different things. So he, he knew where the lines were. 
can you imagine the joy and the clarity of conscience that he must have had? Uh, not because he's letting everyone control his action, but because he is loving the Lord and he's living for the Lord and, and doing everything for their spiritual good. So you can see, just, you know, in, in his, uh, when he, back in verse, uh, well, starting in verse 29, and he's reading the chapter, you can see he's got a clear conscience. He, he, he's, he's willing to do whatever he can to be helpful. And can you imagine having been able to lay down in bed at night and have a clear conscience that, boy, every, every interaction I have with people today, I, I, my first and only goal was what is good for them spiritually. Well, a lot of us, you know, we, we don't have clear conscience because we don't do that, right? But his goal is not to make everybody happy, to have peace at all costs, and not to confront anyone about sin. It was determined by the spiritual and ultimate good. And so if we have to exercise church discipline, for instance, because of some grievous, unrepentant sin, then I can have a clear conscience because I know that I've ministered to that per- person biblically in a way that is good for him. Oh, did we offend him? Yes. That's because he wouldn't repent. Did we do everything we could for his good? Yes. So it's, it's okay to offend in those cases. And I know when I have said something or done something thinking only of myself and I'm left with a guilty conscience. For the many of y'all. You can either ignore it or you can confess it. And if you, if you ignore it, you can add that to the whole problems with that relationship with that person. And just build it up, make it worse. Or you can just confess your sin and make things right. Have a good conscience. So often we just start talking to ourselves as to why it wasn't our fault. It was they shouldn't have been so upset, you know. And we just forget to examine ourselves and to accept responsibility. I want to just look at these verses here. Several verses here that for Paul, how often he deals with, with the conscience. So I always take pains. And can keep in mind our text, what we're talking about here. I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. And I look intently at the counsel, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. I don't think I can say that. I mean, I'm doing, I, I'm trying to, but I don't think I can make, I can be that bold. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. I, I got to get to our, our text in, in uh, next chapter in First Corinthians, where we talk about the roles of men and women. I live in the role that God has put me so that I have a good conscience. And if I'm constantly trying to overstep the role that God has given me, it, it, again, I can't think of it. Second Corinthians one twelve. For by our boast is this: the testimony of our conscience that we behave in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so towards you. There again, he, he, he says, "I'm living where I'm preaching." The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and good conscience and a sincere faith. It's actually interesting how many times Paul speaks of the conscience, and especially how 
his is clear when it comes to his ministry with others. And I'm thinking that we might not be able to say that with the freedom he does. Well, hopefully we do. But like I said, I don't, I'm pretty sure I can't. But, it, but it, it's convicting and it's something I need to work on, right? And I think some people think that as long as I say whatever comes to my mind, no matter who I hurt, well, I've said the truth, I don't care. I used to go past one. Hey, as long as I say the truth in love, I don't care if I think you or not. Well, no, there's a way to say stuff. There's, there's things, times things need to be said, there's times things don't need to be said. Just because you speak the truth don't mean it's a good thing. So if we think about how we have acted with others, our conscience bears witness against us. If you ever find yourself trying, justifying in your mind something that perhaps has been pointed out to you, then probably your conscience is, is, is telling you, uh, no, wait just a minute. Don't try to always justify yourself. We all know if we have done or said something that is wrong, something that is bugger for the glory of God, that it wasn't good for others, listen to that your conscience. That's what mortifying the flesh is, and it's hard. It is examining that heart. That's what mortifying the flesh is. I was watching a TV show the other day that uh, goes back to that verse you read in Colossians. Uh, it's about a, a monk who been found dead. And they were investigating, and they went to the monastery, and they were talking to a superior, and uh, they, they happened to say, you know, they, they found there was a bunch of uh, scars on his back, old scars that had healed. He said, yes, and his brother monk there, he, uh, every once in a while, practiced mortifying the flesh. And I thought, well, that, there you go, that's typical Catholicism. You know, I'm, I'm going to be some, and then the Colossians, the severity of the body, those who teach the severity of the body, that has no value in abstaining from the flesh. You beat it back all you want to. It's your heart that's the problem. So lastly, we ask ourselves, are we seeking to minister to the souls of men? We have seen how Paul and Christ are as good as an example as anyone of this, as, as he mentions here in 11.1. We are, we, if we offend, let it be for the gospel's sake. Or let us just not offend. How often do our offenses have nothing to do with the gospel and have everything to do with what we want to do, our selfishness? How many times is it because we seek the advantage? And Paul says in verse 33, I cannot seek in my own advantage. It's a lot easier, it's much easier to not offend people because I'm not trying to only worry about myself, right? I mean, it's common sense. How often does what will please the Lord and what is biblical enter into our thought process. But if it's all about me getting my own way, my advantage, and that it's not going to happen very often if we're going to think through things biblically. So let me just close with one more example here. Often when we go fishing, we wait until the weather is good. I don't fish that much anymore, really, hardly at all, but I used to fish quite a bit in Wisconsin. I believe that's a mile ago. And you don't usually go in a storm. First of all, the fish are on a bike. And, you know, shallow lakes, especially. But in Christ's type of fishing for men, 
the most is accomplished when the weather is bad. In other words, when, when clouds of life are upon us, when things are not good, that's usually when our testimony and our opportunities increase. <clears throat> when things aren't going well and we are steadfast in the joy of the Lord and our love for each other, that's when the most good is often accomplished, when the weather is bad. But too often in the bad weather, what are we doing? Well, all we can think about is how miserable we are. Our own advantage. Uh, many of you probably know that Sandra doesn't like cold weather. I'm not saying anything that she doesn't. Glad that she does. If it's below 70, she's got a blanket on, you know, a sweater. But I uh, don't mind cold weather at all. If it's 40 or the 50s, I can work out all day. I, I don't, it doesn't bother me. I don't mind it. Now, on the flip side, though, if it gets over like 80, I, I, I'm ready to look for there. But the problem is, of course, is that when you hate the cold weather and you walk outside, all you're thinking about is getting inside. That, that's pretty much it. You're not going to accomplish that much because you've only got one thing in your mind. I want to get inside. And this is the problem. If all we do when, when uh, things don't go our way is think about how miserable we are, how we don't like it, how can I get, how can I get rid of this, instead of, well, okay, go away now, the Lord, this is for a purpose, because all things work together for good, what can I do, how can I serve, now everything changes. So may God cause us to think like Paul and how Jesus thought when they walked upon the earth. Would the God, we would find ourselves, when we find ourselves in stress, that our first thought would not be, oh me, but Okay, now how can I serve the Lord in this? What would the Lord have me do? Now that takes maturity. That takes spiritual growth. That takes mortification of the flesh. Right? And again, it's not your, it's not your body, not your back that you need to mortify. You need to mortify that your pride, selfishness, right? To the God that we would think about Christ first instead of ourselves. Not there today, anyway.